0: Yes, and Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things.
1: Yes, and is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So, what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes, and. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro.
0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Yes, Ann Cafe. I'm Nadja.
1: And I'm Omar.
0: And we're recording today in beautiful Greensboro, North Carolina, with our guest, Zan Marshall. Very excited to have Zan here today. Zan is an attorney, a civil rights advocate, a creative, and a student of the world. She splits her time between working as an independent contractor with the Reform Alliance, litigating with a New York law firm, and working on immigration and other social justice matters with various nonprofit organizations. Creatively, she has a passion for Black art, music, books, documentaries, films, and is currently working to break into this area. Outside of work, she loves to travel internationally and looks forward to getting back to the road post-pandemic. Welcome to our show, Zan. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy
2: to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So getting started, Zan, tell us a little bit about what the Reform Alliance is.
2: The Reform Alliance is a criminal justice reform organization with the purpose of dramatically reducing the number of people who are unjustly under the control of the criminal justice system, starting with probation and parole. That's the focus of the Reform Alliance. So today, it's approximately 6.6 million people under the control of the U.S. criminal justice system, and 2.1 million of those are actually incarcerated. They're either in jails or state prisons, federal prisons. 2.1 million are actually incarcerated, but the other 4.5 million are on probation or parole, and many for periods well beyond what we would consider reasonable. The Reform Alliance was actually founded by Meek Mill and Jay-Z. They're both rappers. um, And the alliance was formed after Meek Mill's personal case got a lot of attention and was in the news. He's been on probation, essentially his entire adult life, until maybe about six or seven months ago. He's off probation now. But he was on probation for 11 years, ever since he was 18. And Like a lot of people on probation he committed what is called a technical violation, which means you don't commit a new crime, but instead you do, you know, something that you or I wouldn't get a ticket for, like an illegal U-turn. If you're on probation, you can go back to jail for, you know, an illegal U-turn. So he popped a wheelie in the street and was sentenced back to prison for two years because of that. And so there was huge outrage. His case got a lot of media attention. And that's when he decided to go ahead and start this organization.
0: Wow, those are really stunning numbers and what an important thing to be involved with. How did you get involved with this project? I understand that this isn't what you were always doing
2: it's not at all actually so after law school I actually went directly into medical malpractice defense so I represented hospitals and doctors and nursing homes etc that were being sued for some kind of alleged negligence and then I ended up leaving New York and going back to my hometown Baltimore and I started working out of DC and did some corporate work and that's just where the need was when I moved to DC and so I, I kind of got stuck in that and then after a couple years of that It just wasn't fulfilling. I knew it wasn't for me from day one. In my mind, I had the idea that it was just going to be a temporary. Oh, I'll just, you know, move to D.C. and do this for a few months. But, you know, things happened, and I kind of got stuck in it. And it just took a few years of being really, really, really unhappy with the work I was doing. And I quit. I quit kind of abruptly, took a year to travel the world. During that year, I just decided to dive deep into myself and figure out what it is that I care about and what it is that I want to put out into the world and leave behind. And that is civil rights and social advocacy is for sure at the forefront of things that matter the most to me. So I just, you know, I just kind of started reaching out blindly. I had no experience in this area, zero. But I was like, you know what? Passion and heart and drive, it's gotten me so many places. And so I just applied that with zero experience in this arena and started reaching out to a bunch of nonprofits and, you know, the opportunities that the doors that opened were the ones that were supposed to, so.
1: That is incredible. I mean, I was just thinking like how courageous that was of you to do that. It's something that people think about probably in their own careers, whatever they're doing about kind of pursuing their dreams. and mm-hmm. But you actually did it, which is really remarkable. And I was wondering, like, as a way of inspiring people, I mean, the work that you're doing in terms of the work with the prison industrial complex and and these issues of injustice are themselves inspiring. But I think it's also the way in which, for me, I feel inspired the way in which you kind of decided to do something different. And I think that that's the case for many people right now. In some ways, many people are having to reconsider how to do things because of the pandemic that we're in, sort of major unemployment, et cetera. But I think even in normal times, people don't take the time to really think through how can they do what they want to do in life because of restrictions. So tell us a little bit about your thinking around how you you made this extraordinary move to quit your job and then travel the world and do that. So tell us a little bit about your thinking.
2: I think, you know, honestly, if I have to take myself back to that point in time, that was summer 2016 when I quit. And so that was summer 2016 when I left to travel for the year. And I just remember feeling so like every day of work when I was commuting from Baltimore to D.C. an hour and a half each way. And so my days didn't get off to the best start usually. But every day I sat at work and I was just like, this is not for me. I, I just knew it. Everyone has a point where they are just like, enough. And so I just day in, day out, went, did the work, you know, and I was good at it. So, you know, there was no complaints for my job, but I just left feeling empty every day. I dreaded going in and it just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I think now is the time. I think now is the time. And I'm just one of those people, I think coincidence or by chance, I don't think they're misplaced. I think that's all tied to your passion, things that you just cannot get out of your mind. And it's interesting that I've found my way back to civil rights and that kind of thing. They say if you're unsure of what your passion is or most interested in, that you should go back to your childhood and inquire more about your childhood and what you were interested in. And I remember I had a conversation with my parents at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm just really trying to figure out what to do with my life. I feel like I'm an attorney. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, why are you trying to change things? Blah, blah, blah. You're doing great. And I just had this conversation with my parents about my childhood and asked what I like to do. I don't really remember much of my childhood. I asked what what were the things I like to do. My parents told me I always, I was always reading. And at a young age, I think reading James Baldwin and like Langston Hughes poems, I think things like that are heavy, but those are things that they said I like to read. I can actually remember this. I loved civil rights movies. Like um, there was a movie when I was younger called Selma Lord Selma with Journey Smollett. And it was about Dr. King and that time period. And that was, I mean, I could literally recite it to you word for word probably all these years later, but I love movies about those matters. And I got away from that growing up. But again, I seem to have found my way back. So... (laughs)
1: I love how you've taken your training, your experience to help others. I was also thinking about what you were saying that you didn't know that you had an interest until you were there and experiencing these things in person because we've heard about these things in the news and TV, etc. And I was thinking about how, you know, your way of being in terms of, you know, whether it's traveling around the world and having experiences that have given you perspective, going back to your upbringing and childhood, traveling down to the border. It's opened up not just new possibilities, but things that you didn't even know were possible or imaginable. It's interesting. I mean, it sounds like, again, maybe this is how you roll, but I think that it's inspiring because I think that if we just continue to do the same things that we do all the time, then we're not going to grow. You have to be intentional to try new things and then see what happens.
0: Zanna, I know that part of your work is on the topic of immigration, which is obviously such a relevant topic right now, unfortunately becoming increasingly relevant. And I wondered if you might have any particular stories you'd like to share or any cases that you can talk about and what that looks like, what that kind of work looks like right now in the current climate.
2: Sure. So my first instance with any immigration work was about this time last year. I went to Tijuana, Mexico as a pro bono volunteer, and I worked with an organization, a nonprofit named Al Otro Laro, which translates to The Other Side in Spanish. It's an organization right at the Tijuana-San Diego borderline. And so I went down there for a couple weeks and essentially I provided emergency legal immigration services to asylum seekers. And the majority of it included daily what we call know your rights trainings, which was essentially what it sounds like aimed at educating people about the U.S., asylum and detention process. And we also helped asylum seekers prepare for their mandatory credible fear interview and help them understand how the legal elements of their personal stories would play out in that process. And so that was just... As my first experience with it, I just had no, you know, in the news, you would see what was going on at the borders in Texas and California. But until I got there, I could not have understood personally until I sat down with someone who had just came from what they called the Yalera and told me about their experience there. Yalera is like a freezer in Spanish. And essentially, when they cross the border and present to a U.S. official and let them know that they would like to seek asylum, they're taken and placed in the Yalet until the next step of the process. And it can be two days. It can be four days. Some of the things that happen there are just so unnecessary. And so we try to advise people before they go. Like essentially one of the things that I never understood, it's freezing in this place. It's absolutely freezing. When you present, you can only go in with one layer of clothing. So they tell you to, we advise people to put their thickest layer at the bottom. So it sounds weird, but put your sweatshirt on at the bottom. And then if you're wearing a t-shirt, put it on over top because they're going to make you take it off and you can only have one layer the purpose, I still don't know. But I think being down there and seeing things in person was just really like, you know what? I didn't even know I had an interest in it. I just knew that there were things going on and pro bono attorneys were needed and that I was available. So I offered my assistance. But yeah, it's alarming when you're there in person and witnessing things and hearing about it firsthand.
1: I think what we're going to do is we're going to bring in our other guest uh, into the conversation, and I'll introduce her. Sian Hailu is a junior at UNC Greensboro studying economics in the Joseph Bryan School of Business and Economics. She was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. She moved with her family to North Carolina, to Charlotte, when she was about 10 years old. And she's thinking about pursuing a career in finance, but definitely has a love of philosophy. And Sian and I have had some wonderful sort of philosophical conversations, what I call walk-and-talks, albeit by phone. I walk in the woods and have the pleasure of having conversations with with colleagues and friends and family. And, And in this case, Sian, who's a student but I've really befriended in a a way that's been wonderful to explore some ideas in philosophy and uh, less so in finance. So uh, welcome to the show, Sian.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So what are your thoughts on what Zan is talking about? In some ways, she's in the middle of her career. Uh, You're in some ways going to be embarking on a career, uh, possibly in finance. What do you make of what she's saying?
3: I really like everything that she's saying. Often I don't see people talking about actions, and it seems like her life is just one action after the other. And I I think it's very inspiring.
1: I agree. It is inspiring. So it's interesting. I think that it is action-driven. It's like doing one thing and then another. I was thinking about the distinction between behaving versus, if you will, being more intentional in our actions. And it sounds like, you know, that's what we should be doing more. That's what Zan has been sort of exhibiting and demonstrating in her life.
3: Yes, your, your life seems like it's just like a set of actions, and you're just taking one action after the other. And I think that even when there was conflict in your life, it, it seemed like you continued to pursue these actions, you continued to pursue your passions. And like I said, it's
0: just very inspiring. It's really inspiring, Zan. I'm wondering if you can contrast the feeling of being engaged in this way with these initiatives that you care so much about with the experience you were talking about earlier with going to a job that you're not passionate about and having to sort of force yourself to do that? How does it feel different in your life to be doing these things that you feel like really matter?
2: For sure. And I think you can try new things and be open to new things and even chase your passions while you're Doing, I'm not saying everyone has to quit their job and make the jump, do both at the same time. And that's what I did for a while. I did work that brought in the money. And then I, on the side, I did work that I actually cared about. And I'm still in some ways doing that. My litigation work, I actually do enjoy the case that I'm working on now. I enjoy what I'm doing, but it's for sure not my passion work. If I'm being honest, it's where the coins are. It's where most of the money is, but I'm able to still do all the things I care about on the side also. After years of sitting in a job that you don't love and that you know is not pushing you, is you don't feel as if you're growing or really helping anyone. When you get to do the things you love, and I, I hear people say this all the time, but it, it's because it's true. It doesn't feel like work, especially with reform. With reform, you have to be on call. They can call you at Saturday night at two in the morning if they need something. It's kind of you know. I've only had one instance like that, but it has happened. The subject matter of whatever they're sending me is just like, oh, my goodness, is this what you need me to do? Oh, Oh, my. okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. I just absolutely love what I'm doing. And I just want everyone to be able to say that about the work they're doing. See, and I was just wondering if
0: you have a question for Zan or a comment about the way that the stories that Zan has been sharing and how they might impact on your life or intersect with your life.
3: Yeah, I actually do have a question for Zan. I know that like a lot of people are graduating now. What would your key advice to them?
2: You know, we are in territory that we have not experienced in a while. Um, I mean, there's been a pandemic before. There was the Spanish flu, of course. And, you know, there have been pandemics. But in our lifetime, this is our first go at a pandemic. And so we're all in territory that we are not familiar with. And we're all trying to navigate it. The world is going to, and already is, it's changing so much. The world is changing so much right now and it all but has to, you know, even down to the simplest things like social distancing is going to continue being a thing for a while. And so that's a new norm that we have to get used to. But I feel like as the world changes, we change with it. I feel like now's the time to be flexible. Don't be hard on yourself. I think we're going to go into another recession. I just would urge graduates to not be hard on themselves right now. I think that's step one. Essentially, we have to focus on the things we can control. There's nothing you and I can do that is going to change the status of the job market right now. Or, you know, I think there's upwards of almost 40 million people in the United States have applied for unemployment since the beginning of this pandemic, since I think the middle of March. That number is astounding. So, if you're a graduate and you don't have a job, do not be up on yourself. Get creative. Take this time to look inward, figure out what it is that you really care about and how you can even one small action towards it. That's all it takes every time is one small action. Everything that I care about, every single morning, I look at it, I have a list of five things that I care about. Even if I spend 10 minutes on each one each day, I will give at least 10 minutes to the things that I care about each day. Something that I also care about is Black art and sharing Black stories. I think Black storytelling, whether it be through song, whether it be through film, documentary, I think it is so important. And so one of my favorite directors, Ava DuVernay, she actually just tweeted something a couple days ago that was like, I have this idea. I'm enraged to the current state of America. I'm enraged. I have an idea, X, Y, Z. And that's kind of how I feel. And so Anything that she's working on, I think she's the best storyteller of our time. Anything that she's working on, I support. And for one, whatever she's getting ready to work on due to the current state of America, I have to work on. So I'm working on my pitch towards her. And yeah, just literally 10 minutes a day. Spend time doing the things that you love. And I guarantee you puzzle pieces will start fitting together. They will.
0: I love the 10 minutes a day advice. It's so. It seems so tractable. And I imagine that if you spend 10 minutes, sometimes you get sucked in and you end up spending a lot more than 10 minutes. But it seems like a way to get in, to get started.
1: That's great. Well, I think that your advice is really helpful, whether you're a recent graduate or you are just living in these times, because I think that staying close and doing the things that we love is life affirming. And I think that we can really get down on sort of the enormity of the catastrophe, the situation that we're living through right now as a nation, as a world. And I also think that we're gonna learn ways of doing things as you alluded to, Zan, which I think if there's a silver lining, there's some possibilities there. So in some ways it's making the most of whatever situation we're in. And that's a relative thing for each and every one of us. Zan, you devote much of your energies to addressing systemic racism. It's actually very timely that we're speaking today, given what's currently happening in the U.S. How are you doing with everything?
2: You know, I feel like right now, I just don't know how other races are feeling, but I feel like right now, as a whole, the Black community is in so much pain. I think the George Floyd killing has really, it has activated something. in even in more than Black people, it's activated something, but especially in Black people, it's just, initially I felt despair. I just felt like this is so sad and I cannot believe this is happening again, again, again. These stories keep happening. And I think at least in Minneapolis, they are tired. They are, and I'm not saying that's the right way to go about it, but they are tearing that city up. And I By all means, I'm not saying rioting is appropriate. But I think it was it is Dr. King who said a riot is the language of the unheard for centuries and decades, decades and centuries, unheard and needs that have gone unmet. Um, We're still fighting the same things and we still have the same arguments and they're tired and people are I don't know. I think this may be the tipping point. I think something has to change at this point. And I just I don't know if everyone else is just as furious or. I, I Yeah.
1: Seeing the footage is particularly disturbing and upsetting, I think, for anybody who has any kind of heart. And I was also thinking about that part of the response, as Dr. King was saying, in terms of the voice or the the language of the unheard is also just the, and you know this because of your work, sort of the deep and structural forms of racism that have exacerbated the pandemic in black communities, where, you know, I know in New York, you have 30% of black community, yet over 50% of the deaths are among black people. So in some ways, these, these are structural issues. And I also think that the law has to be changed and has changed over time, as you, as we well know. The question is, in some ways, the culture that surrounds the law. Because unless we're able to have that kind of a cultural shift where we see ourselves as inextricably tied to those around us, then people can turn their heads and look another direction. But I think that since this is happening in particular ways to Black people in terms of police violence, that it affects Black people in ways that I can't understand, but I do know that it's painful and tragic and infuriating, and it seems like a completely normal human response to be enraged and to, in fact, unleash violence. I'm not saying like you that it's, I'm agreeing with you that it's not the, it's not the most developmental and powerful way of going about things, but it's completely understandable.
2: Exactly. I was going through um, one of my books, of uh, poems earlier, and I one of my bookmarks was a Langston Hughes poem, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's short. It's called Morning, and it says, Negroes, sweet and docile, meek, humble, and kind. Beware the day they change their mind. Wind in the cotton fields, gentle breeze. Beware the hour it will uproot trees. And I feel like we're coming to a moment like that. We've tried peaceful protests, we've tried talking, we've tried waiting. One of my favorite James Baldwin interviews, he's sitting and he's saying, you know, people have always told us justice takes time, progress takes time. It's taken my mother's time, my father's time, my grandmother's time, their grandmother's time. Like, how much time do you want for your progress? How much time?
1: And it was Dr. King who talked about how we can't wait. And in some ways, collectively, humanity can't wait. I don't know. How how do you how do you reconcile the, the, the magnitude of the problems and challenges that we face and just daily sort of day-to-day life? I mean, and this is a question for everybody. I mean, I'm thinking about, Sion, how you're in some ways, you're going to be completing your, your studies as an undergraduate and thinking about going into finance. And, and I was thinking about you know, how Naja has always trying to figure out ways of supporting other people. But I always have this issue. For me, it's, like it's, it's impossible, it feels, to reconcile the macro and sort of the, just the day-to-day. But help me out here.
0: I was just thinking um, how you're in a really interesting position, Zan, because you're actually a part of an attempt to reform the system. You've devoted your life to it. And yet it must also be incredibly frustrating because of how institutionalized and how deeply ingrained in the whole system these problems are. So it's like, I imagine from your position, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but it must feel in some ways just incredibly slow and bureaucratic to try to make change. When you've got people going into a room that's freezing cold and having to take off their clothes to wait for their trial for no apparent reason. Like when you've got people being strangled on the street in plain view by white police officers. Like how can this be the system that we're working in and how do you both work to affect change from within the system? How do you do that versus
2: just throw the whole thing out and start lighting buildings on fire? I do think that the whole system kind of has to go. We can reform the criminal justice system. We can reform police and the way that system operates. But we're trying to reform a system, the police system that was started out of you know, slave patrols. Before it was called the police, they were slave patrols. You know, the badges even look the same. And it's like, I hear people all the time say the system's broken, it's broken, and it's not. That's the reality. The system is functioning exactly how it was designed. So we need a new system. The system works wonderfully. It's exactly how it was built to work. There has to be a new system. And- It's just going to take a lot of minds coming together and figuring out what that system can be. We may not see it in our lifetime. It may not come to fruition in our lifetime, but we got to put the work forward. It's got to be another way. It's got to be another way. Well, if there's anyone to be
0: working on it, it's you, Zan. We're so glad to have you doing this work and really grateful for the work that you're
2: doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And day in and day out, I love it. Even though it's like taxing on my emotions. I'm a very emotional person, but it's like the reality of my life and my my parents' life and my siblings, like at any moment. And I think that's why I care about it so much. At any moment, I could be the next Black Lives Matter hashtag. I could comply. I could not comply. Any interaction with a police officer could turn, could go so left for every Black person. And that's the reality of it.
1: One of the things I was thinking about, I'm actually just Finishing up, put the finishing touches on a piece that I'm writing about the distinguished black postmodern revolutionary, Dr. Lenora Filani. She's somebody who talks about revolution in a way that, so there's the larger sort of ways in which we think about revolution, like in terms of politically, like seizing power, and then we use the word in terms of revolutions in the history of science or in technology and engineering. But there's also the revolutionary ness of people changing their environments and growing by changing those environments in the immediate sense. So even as I was sort of despairing a little bit earlier on this in this conversation about reconciling the macro with the just the, the human and just the You know, face-to-face connections that we have with people or interactions. I was thinking that that's what we can do. That is what's in our control as we work simultaneously on these larger structural issues, which you're doing in terms of the, the legal front with regards to the prison industrial complex, with regards to issues of immigration and migration. And we have each other. We have ways of supporting each other right here, right now. And I think that, I mean, I'm just very grateful for the work that you're doing. I'm very grateful for the conversations I've had with Sion and the partnership I've had with Naja here. But I think that maybe that's where I go with it, which is that you work on both, right? Simultaneously.
3: I was actually going to ask Zan about this. Like, what what would you think it will take for like the system to be gotten rid of or abolished in our lifetime? I understand it's a bit of like a a hypothetical, but...
2: Right. A huge revolution. That's the only thing that will bring about the kind of change that is needed for Black people to feel equality and as though justice is being served in this country. It's going to take a huge revolution. And I can't even, at this current moment, wrap my head around what that revolution is going to look like or you know, have no idea who's going to head it and how it's going to transpire. I just know that a revolution has to be on the way. And I'm just trying to do my part to try and make sure that it occurs.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking how there's so much tragedy and sadness in the midst of the pandemic. And there's also a sense of opportunity that it's almost like a collective reset button for the entire planet in a way. All of us collectively everywhere are thinking about how to live our lives more intentionally and what can we do differently moving forward. And perhaps that's also why this feels like a tipping point with examples of what's happening in Minneapolis and elsewhere in the world. It seems like it's also a moment of change and that feels incredibly optimistic. I go back to your advice at the beginning of our conversation, Zan, about choosing the things that matter to us and spending a little time on them very intentionally every day. And maybe that's what we all have to be doing. And as Omar says, supporting each other in doing that.
1: This has been a great conversation. I want to thank you both, Zan and Sion for doing this together. And I hope you stay safe and healthy, that your families and friends and you know, your neighborhoods, your, our communities are able to kind of navigate through this. And just really want to say thank you to both of you. And also, of course, Nadja.
2: Thank you. And thank you, Omar and Nadja, for having us. I am very happy to be here speaking with you all. Yes. Thank you all. It's been really
1: great
0: to talk with you.
1: Take care, everybody.
0: Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including art production team Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson.